Listen now to the word of God, Romans 1, 1 through 7, and 16, 25 through 27. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but now has been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. So reads the word of God. Romans has been the most requested book of the Bible by far from this body of believers ever since I came here. I just think it's interesting that as I'm approaching my 18th anniversary in just a few weeks, we're finally getting around to Romans. I've been asked to preach Romans 10 times for every other one book I've been asked about. It's literally, it's that out of, I shouldn't say out of balance. Uh, We're that out of balance. (laughs) Not at all. It's a wonderful letter. We all know why that is so. We love this letter. It's an amazing description of the gospel. It's such a meticulously systematic presentation of the gospel that almost every question we ask about faith is going to find its answer in Romans. Presentations of the gospel can be anchored to this one letter, just picking different portions of it and using it to explain how the gospel works. Hard questions, theologically, can be answered in this letter more explicitly, perhaps more deeply, in more extended fashion than in most any other. It's an amazing letter. And honestly, I haven't resisted the idea of teaching it prior to now. I love Romans. In fact, I used to do devotional times in, uh, with both youth and, and older guys in prison, the Cook County jails when we were downtown and, and the Audi home, the, the, the juvenile lockup in Chicago. And almost invariably, I would use Romans as I would talk to those kids or to those guys. It's a fantastic book, but it was, I believe, the final book that Scott Arnavanis was preaching when I came here. It was the final uh, book he was preaching through when he left, 
And so I figured when I came, it would be a while before I went back into it again because he had been in it quite a while. That said, Romans is the book that people most like to reference with regard to how long it took their pastor to go through it. It's almost like they're saying that the longer you take with Romans, the better you grasp the gospel. (laughs) And no disrespect to those who believe that, I just don't agree with that at all. I believe it's most helpful to pick up the flow of a book and understand the flow of the argument. And then when you do that, you can go back and mine deep and rich truths from different places because you... You begin hearing them in context, and it is so helpful in that way. So drilling into every detail, you can end up getting caught in the trees and forgetting what the forest looks like. So what we try to do is look at enough trees to appreciate what's there and then get a grasp of the forest because then I think we've been far better equipped to go back into that letter at a later time and understand more deeply what we're reading in that text. So with no disrespect intended to such people, I I don't agree with how long we should stay in it. I just want to be clear as we begin that we're not going for any records, uh, either fast or slow. Um, And when we finish, I'd much rather that you have a, a solid grasp of Romans and its presentation of the gospel than, than bragging rights on how long the journey took. Um, another thing, We've not laid out this series from the beginning to end yet. Most often I will try to do that in the series we're preaching because then we can look ahead. It helps for worship planning. If other members of the preaching team are preaching, it helps to see what we're doing on a a given day. But at least from the beginning, we're resisting that in this particular study because our intent will be to pause from time to time and to take little theological side trips perhaps Uh, here and there to explore topics that Paul addresses in this letter. It it is helpful to do that kind of thing. So you can exposit the text, and then if it raises some questions, especially some questions that are of some relevance for today, you can take a week or two out, look into that, and then go back into the text. So we're we're planning to go a little bit more that direction, so it'll be a bit more fluid. Also, uh, with Revelation, we had decided as a preaching team it would be best for one of us to preach that and not try to share that very challenging letter. We'll almost be the opposite with Romans. Uh, we'll share quite a bit. That's what our intention is from the beginning because this one is one that we all love to just roll up our sleeves and dig into together. So there's just a few introductory comments about our own series. Today, to kick it off, I'll just be preaching a quick introduction and overview using an outline that that I believe will help us to remember more easily the flow of the argument that Paul makes in this letter. You can see it there in your bulletin. It'll be my preaching outline this morning. Essentially, just two points, but the first point has three sub-points. And we've worked on the wording of this a bit so that it's memorable and clear and helpful and parallel and helps us see the flow of Romans. Essentially, the first section, the first point of the outline is Romans 1 through 11, chapters 1 through 11, a review of God's mercies. And then underneath that, how people are justified before God, that's chapters 1 through 4. Then how people are sanctified before God, that's chapters 5 through 8. And then how God is justified before people. 
That's chapters 9 through 11, and if you know it's in chapters 9 through 11, you can appreciate the need for that. God handles his salvation in ways that cause us to stumble at times, and so chapters 9 through 11 will help us see that, how God is justified before people, how we can get comfortable with the way that God manages salvation. And then point two is the remainder, chapters 12 through 16, which is a response to God's mercies. Uh, so that outline hopefully will help, help you just remember the flow and get a picture of where we, at, where we are at at each point along the way. Romans was written in the latter half of Paul's ministry, so it's one of his later letters, written, most agree, in 18... Or 18. Huh. It's written in 1857, yeah. Uh, that's not even a Freudian slip, that's just a misspeak, okay? So, in 57 A.D., and was addressed to a church with which Paul had no personal connection prior to this letter. You can hear some of that. That explains some of the, the detail and precision with which the letter is written, perhaps. It was likely that church in Rome was likely birthed by some of the, the visitors from Rome who are mentioned explicitly in Acts chapter 2, verse 10, who are present at the day of Pentecost when Peter preached his sermon in the streets of Jerusalem, that, that occasion that we can often call the birthday of the church, the giving of the Spirit. But Paul wanted to establish a relationship with this church in Rome toward, toward partnering in his gospel ministry. We read of his plans in chapter 15, verses 14 through 29. Paul gives us a little window into what he's doing, when he's planning to do it, and how he plans and why he plans to visit Rome. After he delivered the relief offering that he had been collecting from his Gentile churches to the, the, the church in Jerusalem that was going through a time of famine and hardship, after he delivered that offering to Jerusalem, he planned to go on to Rome and then, with their help, to go on to Spain, chapter 15, verse 24. So, as Paul says right there in verses 18 through 20, headed into mentioning Spain, he felt like his work in the eastern Mediterranean region was done. He was finished. And unless he begins building on somebody else's foundation, he wants to go to a new horizon. He wants to go to a new frontier to proclaim the gospel. And Spain was the place that Paul foresaw himself going, although you recognize that when he actually got to, Revelation, got, to Revelation, got to Jerusalem, as we studied in Acts just a year or two ago, uh, things unfolded a bit differently. As he was approaching Jerusalem, he was told, you're going to be arrested, you're going to be detained, and so forth. And so his plans changed we don't know if these took place, but we can see what Paul's plans were as he wrote this letter to Rome. So this letter to Rome, then, is the clearest and fullest, most extended, uh, most situationally unencumbered explanation of a gospel that appears in Paul's writings. Now, I have to be careful when I say situationally unencumbered. What I mean is he's not getting entangled in a lot of problems that were happening there in Rome to address them like he did, for instance, with Galatia or with the Corinthians, uh, where his, his, his letters are, are handling some significant problems. But Romans isn't free of those kinds of references either. You can discern a fair amount about the Roman church from how Paul is writing here. So we want to say it's among the most situationally unencumbered letters 
But there are still some particular things going on in Rome. For instance, we can tell that there were Jews and Gentiles together in the Roman church, and there was some need for them to understand how to relate to one another in Christ. We can also see that there were some struggles with how to care for the weaker, newer believers in Rome and how to be compassionate and merciful with them in the exercise of Christian freedom. We can see things like that that teach us some things about Rome, but they are also good general principles for the church as a whole, even at times where those kinds of struggles are not happening. So Rome, Romans is that kind of letter. It's not intended to be a defense of the gospel, as some people suggest, and still less is it intended to be a systematic theology. This is not Paul's systematic theology, although we can learn some systematic theology from it. Rather, Paul has written this letter as his expression, I would say, of the platform from which he, together with the church in Rome, would eventually launch their collaborative gospel ministry into Western Europe. He's making sure they're all on the same page with regard to the gospel in detail from first to last. And so he's laying it out with some clarity because this is going to be sort of their, their charter as they begin working together for the advance of the gospel in a new region. Uh, one of the simple principles of hermeneutics, and hermeneutics is just that fancy word for Bible study methods, one simple principle of hermeneutics is to look at the beginning and the end of a book to see if it advances from one place to another or if it starts and finishes in the same place. Examples of books that start and finish in different places, usually that's a narrative that's telling a story. Think of Exodus, think of Numbers, that's talking about the experience of Israel and it's moving them through a time and it, it begins in one place and it ends in another. It begins in in Egypt, perhaps, and finishes in the wilderness. Romans is an example of the other sort, one that starts and finishes in the same place. Uh, when you see that in a letter, it probably means that you are studying a subject, you're drilling into a certain topic. Clearly, as you heard a few minutes ago when we read the beginning and the ending of Romans, it was one of the reasons for reading it, it's that Romans begins and ends in the same place, using almost exactly the same language to say what this letter is about. Paul is, is drilling into the gospel to understand justification, and justification is the righteousness of God granted to us by faith for the purpose of bringing about the obedience of faith. There's the heart of the letter to Rome. And you can hear it in Paul's opening words, and you can hear it repeated in the ending words. All of this taken together is to see how the true righteousness that is from God, received by faith, brings about the obedience of faith in the life of believers. So this letter is studying a subject. I was interested to read one commentator who said, if we wanted to sum up the letter with one word, I would suggest the word justification. To be justified is to be declared right before God. I appreciate that. That's a good one-word summary of the content of the letter of Romans. And that is surely a good word to summarize, especially justification by faith, if you wanted to add those two words that are familiar to us, especially through Martin Luther and the Reformation. But I think there's an even better summary of the message of Romans a phrase, again, 
And it's the title of my sermon this morning. And it's currently the title we're using on our slides for this study of Romans, namely, the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. If we want to say what Romans is about, I think that's a good way to capture it. Justification tends to put the focus on the one who is receiving God's saving gift. The righteousness of God puts the focus on what is being received. And it's an amazing gift that we are being given by God in Christ. We are being given His righteousness. Variations of justification, that word, are used 15 times in Romans. Variations of the word righteousness are used 41 times. And often, righteousness that is attributed to God, whether explicitly or implicitly. So I would just propose that as a good theme to hang over or write under the book of Romans, the righteousness of God. Because of this emphasis, many commentators who, who don't hold as high a view of Scripture like to drive a wedge between the teaching of Paul in Romans and the teaching of Jesus in the Gospels. You can run into that if you read on Romans very far, very wide. In summary, they say that Jesus was preaching the kingdom of God where Paul preached justification by faith, and those are really somehow supposed to be separate issues. We could spend a lot of time talking about that this morning, but we're not going to. I would just say, in a summary bottom line, I don't think there's any ground for that. Most simply put, Jesus clearly told his followers to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, right? Jesus isn't separating between the two, Matthew 6, 33. And in the closing charge in his final letter, 2 Timothy, Paul wrote, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his kingdom. Paul didn't see a distinction between those two either. When you're justified by faith, you're incorporated into the kingdom of God. So if you run into people who are suggesting that Jesus and Paul were teaching different things, don't buy it. Don't buy it. Let's walk quickly now through Paul's argument. The, the outline that we've, uh, we've shown you there in the bulletin um, in those two parts, just walk through that and see where this letter goes. Just trace out the argument of it and then, God willing, next Sunday we'll look at the opening verses of chapter 1. So first, a review of God's mercies. A review of God's mercies. That's chapters 1 through 11. The, the language here is drawn from chapter 12, verse 1. You probably recognize it, where Paul transitions toward how he wants the Romans to live in response to all that he's written. And he summarized all that he has written in chapters 1 through 11 as the mercies of God expounded. So in light of them, how are we supposed to live? That's what chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 is transitioning us toward. What God has done to accomplish our salvation, our justification, what he's done to grant us the righteousness of God, those are the mercies of God in chapters 1 through 11. And he began then, right at the beginning in chapter 1, to establish our need for the righteousness of God. And that's what he does over these next several chapters. So let's move into the sub-points under point one there. So a review of God's mercies. Let's look first how people are justified before God. Chapters 1 through 4. 
After stating clearly that the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel, that that righteousness of God is from faith for faith, in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1 there. And by the way, keep this open. I'll be pointing to it, and at times I'll be reading chunks, and I'll tell you where so you can just follow that on the page. But if you wanted to mark verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1, that's generally believed to be the theme verses of Romans. That's what Paul is writing about here. So he's stating clearly that the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel is from faith for faith, as he writes it there, meaning something like by faith from first to last. That's how NIV translates it. That's how New Living translates it. And this shows itself by bringing about the obedience of faith. So the righteousness of God is validated, Paul is saying, by bringing about the obedience of faith in the lives of those who receive it. Paul then launches into his argument to prove that every single one of us stands in need of this grace. Every single one of us stands in need of the righteousness of God being applied to us by faith. All people, without distinction, Jew and Gentile alike, Surely, we would say, the godless nations cannot attain to the righteousness of God on their own. That's the, Paul, the point Paul makes in the second half of chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. The godless nations can't attain to it on their own. They're pursuing their own best interests. They don't even have any orientation toward the righteousness of God. But you might expect that the Jewish crowd there in Rome would have thought, well, aren't we better than the nations? At least we're oriented toward this. And Paul takes the next chapter and a half, chapter 2, verse 1, through chapter 3, verse 8, to say that that's not true of Israel either. That Israel itself can't pursue the righteousness of God on their own either. They can't receive it, even with their rich history, they can't receive it apart from embracing God's saving grace by faith. That's what brings us to the summary verses in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 3. You can see it written there. What then? Are we Jews any better off? Now we know that a similar question like this will be asked later in the book and there will be examples of how the Jews are better off. All the things that they have received. Paul's not forgetting about that here. But he's talking about the need to receive the righteousness of God by faith in order to be reconciled to God. And with regard to that, are Jews in any better place than Gentiles, he's asking? What then? Are the Jews, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, he says. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, None is righteous. No, not one. No distinction. But then, just a few verses later, comes the clearest short statement of the gospel that appears anywhere in the Bible. It is a beautiful text of Scripture. If you were going to memorize any one passage from Romans, it would be so tempting to go to chapter 8 first. It might be tempting to go to chapter 12. I would suggest going first to chapter 3. What a picture this is of the gospel. Look at chapter 3, beginning at verse 21, and just follow along as I read. After hearing that Jew and Gentile alike 
are in desperate need of the saving grace of God, what we read here is, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. There's no distinction between Jew and Gentile in the receiving of this gospel reconciliation in Christ. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. So we all stand in need of it and we're all saved by one and the same means. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. We'll drill into that a bit more when we get to chapter 3, but just quickly, that word propitiation is so, so important. It's, it's, got, a, it's got a dual meaning, really. Propitiation talks about expiation on one side and then appeasement on the other. So our sins are atoned for, and with that, they are taken away from us as far as the east is from the west, the Scripture said. It's really covered by that expiation word, but what propitiation adds to it, it folds that in and then adds in an appeasement of the wrath of God that our sins justly deserve. So Christ is put forward as the absorption of the wrath of God against the sins of all who believe and a removal of their sins from them as far as the east is from the west for all who believe and trust in him by faith. It's a beautiful word. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. Do you hear what he's saying? God can be charged with wrongdoing from historical observation. He has let sin go unpunished. That's a problem. How is it that he could say to David, you won't die following his sin with Bathsheba? What, everybody else in Israel pays for adultery with death, but the king gets a pass? How does that work? God could have been charged with wrongdoing for letting sin go unjudged. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just. In other words, his righteousness reestablished. He's not letting anybody get by with sin so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So all of that just hung there until Christ comes and receives the outpouring of the wrath of God at the cross for the sins of all who believe, Old and New Testament alike, throughout human history. And finally, as we see that act accomplished, we recognize God is righteous. God is just. 
sin does receive his wrathful judgment. And unless our sin and the wrath of God against it has been received by Christ, it remains upon us. That's a point Paul will make. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier, the one who has faith in Jesus. Beautiful, beautiful description of the gospel. This is the gospel we're learning about in Romans, and it's available to both Jew and Gentile by faith, Paul is saying. Abraham is the example of that in chapter 4, and chapter 4 tells that story. Paul has already written in chapter 2 that no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. It was never about that, Paul is saying. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. What Paul is saying is that if in your heart you are not following Christ, your circumcision matters not under the old covenant sign. But even if you aren't circumcised and are seeking to follow the law, that matters in a new covenant context. So Paul's already made that statement back in chapter 2, and he clarifies it now in chapter 4 as he's talking about Abraham as the example of faith. He says in verse 13, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but it came through the righteousness of faith. It is the children of faith that are the children of Abraham. We'll look into that more as we get to that section so that is how people are justified before God. Let's move on now into that next section of how they're sanctified before God. Chapters 5 through 8. Paul turns his attention to the benefits that come to those who have trusted in Christ for salvation. Chapter 5, verse 1. Look how he states this. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We've been reconciled to God. Through him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings. This is part of the benefit of being justified by faith. We actually now not just rejoice in our growth in Christ, we can even rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. We saw that in Revelation. There's one of those themes that's common between the two. And endurance produces character, causes us to grow up in Christ. And character produces hope. As we mature, our hope sharpens. Our hope in the day of the eternal deliverance of our salvation. And then Paul says in verse 5, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. What he's saying is that when we receive God's salvation by faith, we will surely receive the whole package. All that Jesus' death and resurrection purchased for us will be ours. We receive it in down payment form and we trust Christ as Savior and receive the Holy Spirit and the full package will surely also be delivered. Our hope will not be disappointed. In fact, uh, we'll be, as Paul wrote to the Colossians, 
delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. That's what happens when we trust Christ as Savior. We change worlds. We talked a bit about that on Christmas Sunday morning. So we looked at the latter half of Romans 5. We'll be delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. Right there and then at that moment, the Holy Spirit will take up residence with us as we just heard in verse 5 here. As we'll read about again over in chapter 8, particularly verse 9. Giving us the down payment on the new age. Making us partakers of the divine nature, to use Peter's language. And causing us to be dead to sin through the death of Christ and alive to righteousness through his resurrection. That's what we receive in Christ. That's what our sanctification is built on. The work of God doing its work in our hearts, making us like Christ. The battle between our old nature of inheriting death through Adam and our new nature of inheriting life in Christ still rages in our lives. We feel that battle every single day, don't we? Between our old nature and our new nature. We feel it in our hearts. We feel it in our experience. And chapter 7 is such a clear and compelling description of that dynamic in the process of our sanctification. But then chapter 8 finishes this section with a flourish. Celebrating all that's ours through faith in Christ by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We're promised, for instance, that all things will work together for our good. Isn't that an amazing promise? This world is pretty full of suffering and hardship. Even so, when we trusted Christ as Savior, we inherit the promise that all things will work together for our good. That's worth understanding better as we get to chapter 8. We also learn that there's absolutely nothing, nothing in this world, nothing in this cosmos, in the, the heavens above on the earth or in the, the sea beneath. Nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's another of the promises that we receive having trusted Christ as Savior. Well, with those statements, though, Paul has put himself in a somewhat awkward position at this stage of the letter of Romans. If God's promises are utterly reliable, what has become of his promises to Israel? Well, in chapters 9 through 11, Paul addressed this question in ways that have captivated and confounded Bible students ever since he wrote them. It's such a compelling argument for the sovereignty of God and salvation that we can oftentimes forget the setting. We go there just to answer questions about the sovereignty of God and salvation, not remembering the context of the passage. Paul has this section in the letter to Romans in order to defend how it is that we can trust the promises just made in chapter 8 when we can look at the Jews and say it doesn't appear as though God's keeping his big promises to them. That is the question on the table. How can we trust the grand promises of God as his new covenant people in Christ 
If we don't believe, he's kept his grand promises to his old covenant people through Abraham. What's the basis of our confidence in the promises of God? Well, Paul's answer there came in several parts, and I so look forward to studying that text of Scripture together. But in summary here, first, he affirmed or reaffirmed a point that he'd made earlier that even in Israel, it is only those who believe who are saved. He wrote, for instance, chapter 9, verse 6. Find it on the page. Follow along as I read the next couple or three verses. He wrote there, It is not as though the word of God has failed. He hasn't failed to keep his promises, in other words. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Boy, if we could take a few minutes to let that statement sink in, it would solve a whole lot of questions that divide the church. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. That means according to the flesh. But, and then Paul quotes from the Old Testament, through Isaac your offspring will be named. Verse 8, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Those are the people of God, the ones who believe, not just the ones who are born into our particular physical lineage. That's the first thing. Second, as Paul is answering this question, it is God who determines the recipients of his salvation. His promises are made to them, to the recipients of his salvation. And he will never fail to keep his promises to those recipients. Verse 15 of chapter 9. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Salvation is of the Lord. It's his gift to the ones he's purposed to give it. And third, in the end then, we can be certain that chapter 11, verse 26, worth flipping over there and seeing this on the page. Third and finally then, we can be certain that in this way, verse 26 of chapter 11, all Israel will be saved as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, he will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Quoting Isaiah 59, verses 20 and 21. In this way, all Israel will be saved, he says. I love the words of Mark Dever here. He said, perhaps Paul means there will be a great turning to Christ among the physical descendants of Abraham during the last days. Or perhaps he means that all true Israel, the elect of God, will be saved. Or perhaps he means both. And I don't see any reason to think that it doesn't mean both here. This is both talking about an end times conversion of a large number of ethnic Israelites and the fact that all true Israel, as Paul has defined it from the beginning of this letter, will be saved to the praise of God's glory and grace. So either way, God is faithful. 
He's faithful to his promises, and Paul has defended that. He's, he's justified God in the eyes of people, using now a bit different definition of the word justified than we use when we're talking about people being justified before God. It's not God's sins that have been atoned for. It's God's actions that have been explained and understood in a remarkably compelling way. The final section of the letter then in chapters 12 through 16, a response to God's mercy, the final section of Paul's letter to Rome is the part with which we're probably most familiar, I would say. He's taken 11 chapters to spell out the mercies of God systematically and in meticulous detail. Elsewhere, we've seen Paul divide his letters right down the middle as he separates between theological foundation and sort of moral, ethical application. Think Ephesians, think Colossians. But here, more like he did in Galatians, it's fully two-thirds foundation and one-third application. So it's in chapter 12 that he makes that turn. But also remember that he gave four chapters in the middle of the foundation section to the patterns of our sanctification, which is sort of an applicational uh, outworking as well, practical living out of our faith. Even so, here is, is the great turning point of the letter, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Look at the text. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Then he proceeded to talk about what that looks like. What it looks like to prove the will of God by testing, by living it and seeing how it works. He talked first about spiritual gifts in verses 3 through 8 of chapter 12, the exercise of those within the life of the church. He talked about proper love and obedience within the body from the middle of chapter 12 through the end of chapter 13. And then he turned his attention to the proper love and obedience within the body with regard to special emphasis on caring well for the weaker ones among us. That's chapter 14 through the middle of chapter 15, ending in verse 17. Or, I'm sorry, verse 7. Taking us up to one of the clear and unifying statements in all of the letter that, that draws the whole picture together. Look at chapter 15, verses 8 and 9. We see Paul essentially drawing a, a subtotal bottom line here right before his closing section of this letter. He says... For I tell you that Christ became a servant. Wow, I'll tell you what, that's a great word. Think of the, the servant passages in Isaiah 40 through 55. Think, think of that servant of Israel. I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. You see him drawing the whole picture there together? In other words, the salvation of the nations that we see under the new covenant goes all the way back to the promises to the patriarchs in the Old Testament. 
And what has been written here is proving the truthfulness of God to deliver that salvation through His people to bless the nations. Them and the nations. In the words of Doug Moo, who you'll hear me quote a number of times through this series, and others who are preaching on it as well, I'm sure. I love the way he summarizes this. He says, Paul reminds the Gentiles that Christ continues to be concerned about the Jews, but even so, Christ's ministry to Jews has a larger purpose. It is for the sake of God's faithfulness to his promises. These promises made to the patriarchs included the blessing of all the nations. Therefore, when those promises are confirmed, the result is that Gentiles are able to join with Jews in glorifying God for his mercy. There's a good summary statement of how it all comes together. They all become one in Christ, we might say. Or to use the language of Ephesians 2, they all become one new man in Christ, fulfilling God's promise to Abraham that through him and through his seed all the nations of the world will be blessed. That is where we're headed in Romans. That is the gospel that we will learn in this letter, pressing through it to unpack it and see how it works in our lives still today as it worked in the lives of the Romans so many years ago. And for us today, the takeaway, receiving God's righteousness by faith is our only hope It's our only hope of entering into the rich blessings of his mercies that are described here. Therefore, gaining life from death, being transferred from the kingdom of death and darkness to the kingdom of light and life. Our only hope of that is to receive the righteousness of God that has been made available to us us in Christ and to receive it by faith. Now we're going to come to the table of the Lord together and rejoice in the salvation that has been provided in Jesus. Would you pray with me? And even as we pray, those who are uh, helping to serve communion and those who are leading in worship, please come to the front. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this rich, glorious letter of Romans. We thank you for the opportunity to just see its flow today. As we begin this study, I pray that your spirit would be present with us every single step of the way. That you might be glorified in us and through us as your gospel takes hold of our hearts yet again on, God willing, a deeper and richer level than ever before. For your glory, for our good, for the spread of your kingdom. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.